Hi there, everybody. How's it going? Welcome to D4, D&D Deep Dive. This is the show where each week we take a deep dive into one, sometimes two, specific character builds for Dungeons and & Dragons, and we theorycraft about a character, we crunch numbers on the character, in the attempt not to necessarily tell you the right way or the best way to play a character, but to explore one potential option of a character, in the hopes of creating something that is both really fun, but also really powerful to play in-game. So if you enjoy creating characters for D&D almost as much as you enjoy playing the actual game itself, or even if you're just looking for tips or ideas on a character that you want to play, then welcome home. This is where you belong, and I'm really glad that you're here, so thanks for being here. My name's Colby, and I'll be your host. Before we jump in, if you would like a written guide to this build that gives step-by-step directions on how to recreate the character yourself, then please consider joining the channel as a member. There should be a little button down there somewhere that says join. For $2 a month, you help me create more and better content, but also you can get a cheat sheet guide, as it were, that I create for this and for pretty much all of my builds that I put in my write-up library. And yeah, that'll just make it a little bit easier for you to actually access that and also uh, support the channel. So thanks for considering. And even if you're not considering joining the channel, thanks for being here anyway. Watching, liking, subscribing, commenting, all of those things are also a great way to support me. So thank you. So I've had a lot of requests for a Swords Bard build over the last several months. And my initial response when I see those is to think, well, I've done a few Swords Bard builds. But the truth is, with really only one exception, that being the Bard Locker, many, many months ago. Usually when I take Swords Bard, it's not much more than a dip. And so it feels a little disingenuous to say I've done a lot of Swords Bard builds. And in fact, even that Bard Locker was a hand crossbow ranged Bard build. So it arguably wasn't even for like a real Swords Bard. So I thought today I'd try to just give it the full deal treatment. Build a character who is mostly a Swords Bard, who takes levels in Swords Bard very early, and who actually uses swords. Something probably a little bit closer to what most of us think of when we envision what a Swords Bard should look like. A charismatic, gish character, right, who wields both blade and spell to great effect. They might be a bit rakish, a bit of a rogue, using that as an adjective, not speaking of the D&D class, of course. But they can inspire, insult their enemies, buff, debuff, and even hit like a freight train once in a while. With a lot more panache and pizzazz than their lesser gishes. Sounds fun. So that's what we're going to do today. Now, due to the nature of the abilities that swords bards get, most especially their flourishes, I think it makes the most sense to build them for like nova damage or burst damage. That is, trying to build them in a way that with the expenditure of limited resources, they could pump out massive amounts of damage in a single round in the hopes of eliminating an enemy or maybe even two early on in the fight, taking advantage of superior action economy for your entire party. So yeah. That's the preamble, that's it. That's gotta be a record for me, or the shortest preamble ever. I mean, there is gonna be a lot of exposition later on, so don't get too excited, but anyway, let's jump in to episode 80, 
the Swords Bard. And as always, a big thanks to my friend Randall Hampton for creating this fantastic artwork that he does for each of my episodes. I present him with the character concept and he draws these amazing character creations based on the little amount of detail that I give him. And they're all fantastic and this one is no exception to that. I love the detail and the personality that he gives each of his drawings. If you would like to follow Randall, I'm gonna put links in the video description as always on how to do so. Big thanks to Randall and let's jump into the build. All right, at level one, Let's just address this right at the beginning. You need to make a decision right away if you are going to take a Hexblade dip on this character or not. If you want to be as good at hitting stuff as you are at casting spells, and you want to have more points at character creation to put into your constitution score, then you take a Hexblade dip. Don't get mad at me. Wizards of the Coast are the one who made Hexblade so good. If, on the other hand, you're fine with just being pretty good at the spellcasting bit, and really good at hitting stuff, or vice versa for that matter, and you can live with a constitution modifier that's one or two points below where it otherwise could be, or for that matter if you just really don't like what a dip in Warlock does to your character story-wise, then don't take a Hexblade dip. That's fine. Now, I have said that I am building this character for burst damage, and as such, I for this build, care a little bit less about our spellcasting stat and the other bardy things that I can do than I care about hitting stuff. So for me, for this version of the build, it's a little less painful to pass on Hexblade. We will miss Hexblade's curse in particular for our Nova round when it comes to damage, but other than that, we won't miss the other Hexblade benefits too much when we're just thinking about the damage that we do on our Nova round. And for that matter, not having to lose a level for that Hexblade dip means that we can get an ability score increase or feat before our first damage report at level six, which is going to do wonders for our damage. In fact, it's even gonna make our Nova round better at six than it otherwise would be. I'll get into that later. Perhaps the biggest reason that I decided not to go Hexblade on this character though is that Eventually, at least, we are going to be pretty bonus action heavy. There's going to be a little bit of a traffic jam with our bonus action here. And so having one more thing, Hexblade's Curse, as good as it is to further clog up our bonus action just didn't feel really great to me. Anyway, if you decide to go Hexblade here, I don't think it's a bad idea. I won't be angry. Other people might be. Many of the commenters on my videos. <laughs> whenever I take a Hexblade dip. But if you do, I would recommend doing so right at level one. As for us, what should we start with? Bard, right? Nah. I'm planning on taking Paladin levels eventually, and so I think I would rather start Paladin here for a few reasons. First off, um, we get better equipment proficiencies, for one, with you know our armor and weapons. We get more health, of course. But most importantly, our wisdom score on this character, as we will see in a minute, is going to be really bad. It's going to be a dump stat, in fact. And wisdom is one of the more important saving throws for player characters in D&D 5th edition. Since Paladins get wisdom, Wisdom saving throw proficiencies and bards do not. I would say we start with Paladin to pick up proficiency in our wisdom saving throws to help make up for that low wisdom score that we're going to have. If you would rather start Bard, go for it. But when we first meet our hero, I think they might be a squire to another Paladin, perhaps, striving to follow in their footsteps, preparing themselves to swear their own oath. Or maybe they're working in a temple somewhere, training and learning. I know most Paladins in 5e don't have 
to be religious necessarily, but I think my character here would probably be a servant of the goddess Milil, goddess of poetry and song, or perhaps Helm, god of protection. But you might decide that they've simply sworn for now to uphold justice and or defend those who cannot defend themselves or something like that. That's fine. As for our race, I'm going to recommend that we go half-elf here. The stat bonuses that half-elves get are really nice, of course, and like all paladins, we're going to be a bit mad, multiple ability score dependent, so getting a plus two and a plus one and a plus one is really great. But there's an even more important reason to go half-elf or elf if you prefer. We'll get into that later. As for our sub-race of half-elf, I'd suggest Mark of Detection if you can play with the Eberron book as the extra spells that they get access to are really nice, or Mark of the Storm as an alternative there. But if you can't or don't want to because you think those Mark races are overpowered, I think Drow, half-elf Drow, are a strong option here as well, potentially giving us the ability to cast some additional spells as well, though aside from the Dancing Lights cantrip, you only get those spells once per day as opposed to the Mark of the Storm, which are just added to the spell list of your spellcasting class. As for our ability scores, I'm assuming that we're using the point-by method as always, and that we are using Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, which tells us that we can assign our racial stat bonuses to whatever ability scores we want. So I'm saying we take a 15 dexterity and a plus two there, a 15 charisma and a plus one there, and then a 13 strength and a 12 constitution with a plus one there giving us a 13 constitution. Not great, I know, but we needed that 13 strength because of multi-classing requirements with Paladin. As for equipment, I would recommend that we go with the gold buy method and that we purchase some scale mail. A couple of short swords or scimitars if we can afford it and we just like the look and feel of scimitars. And whatever other necessities we have and can afford. Um, we don't have the strength to wear plate mail anyway without suffering a move speed penalty, so we're going to commit to medium armor on this character. As a paladin, then, at level 1 we get Divine Sense, first of all, which lets us, as an action, 1 plus our Charisma modifier times per day, so that's 4 for now, basically reach out and try to sense any celestial, fiend, or undead that's within 60 feet of us, not behind total cover. That's situationally kind of useful once in a while. But then we do, of course, get the Lay on Hands ability, which gives us five points per paladin level that we can use as an action to heal ourselves or an ally. One hit point of healing per Lay on Hands point spent, or we can use five Lay on Hands points to cure a disease or poison. And if we're just using healing, to bring back allies that have gone unconscious, which is arguably the most effective way to use healing in 5th edition. This is actually a really potent ability. When someone's gone unconscious, they only need one hit point of healing to come back, so you could use this potentially five times to bring back somebody from being knocked down. At level two, we could of course go Paladin 2 here as that would get us spells and Divine Smite, and those are both good and very important for this build. I just don't want to delay our bard levels any longer. If you wanted to go Pally 2 here, go for it for us. Our champion now has either, I think, decided that the best way to proselytize for their deity will be to take their show on the road and use their innate talent for music and or oration combined with their martial skill to show people the truth or perhaps they simply cannot contain the song of righteousness that exists within themselves and they see no reason why they can't perform 
while they fulfill their more zealous duties. They have so much charisma, it's just bursting out of them and it cannot be contained. Whatever your reasons, we're gonna take bard levels here. And so as a bard one, we get bardic inspiration, of course, that lets us charisma modifier times per day, so three for now, use a bonus action and then give an ally that's within 60 feet of us and who can hear us bardic inspiration. For the next 10 minutes, they can use that bardic inspiration to add a d6 to any ability check, attack roll, or saving throw that they make. Or actually, if you're using Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, they can also add it to a spell that heals or does damage. It's the Bard's Calling card, and your allies will love you for it. We also get spells. We get Bard Cantrips and first level spells. For the most part, I'm going to just say pick your favorite, though I do think every Bard should have Vicious Mockery because... It's just awesome, and killing somebody with an insult might be the pinnacle of hilarity in D&D. But the only one that I'm going to highlight here and say that I will plan on using during combat for now is Fairy Fire. Fairy Fire is a great spell for first level, especially if your party has no other reliable way to get advantage on their attacks. Since I can't know, of course, what party members you're traveling with and what buffs and debuffs they might be throwing out, I'm going to say let's plan on using Fairy Fire for now for our concentration as it covers each creature in a 20-foot cube who fails a dexterity saving throw with a colored light, and then for the next minute, any attacks against them are made with advantage. Now, taking an entire action to cast this may seem like a steep price to pay, but considering the benefits that it can potentially give to your entire party against potentially multiple enemies, I think it's worth it. You are a bard, after all, so throw out those buffs and debuffs. It's partly why you're here. At level 3, we would be a bard 2. We get Jack of All Trades, which is one of my favorite bardic abilities. Any ability check you make that doesn't already include your proficiency bonus, including initiative rolls, which do, in fact, benefit from Jack of All Trades, you can add half of your proficiency bonus rounded down. Lovely. And then we get Song of Rest, which tells us that when you and your allies spend hit dice to recover hit points during a short rest, you can add a 1d6 for now of extra healing as you soothe the party with song or oration. Level 4, we'd be a Bard 3, and it's like Christmas. We get so many fabulous things at this level. So first up, we get second level spells. There are so many great ones, of course, but none that I'm gonna plan on using when I crunch numbers, so I'm just gonna say pick your favorites. We get expertise, which is fantastic. It lets us pick two skills that we're proficient in and double our proficiency for those skills. Again, I would say pick your favorite. I think as a bard, you kinda have to go performance, but maybe you're more interested in being stealthy or improving your perception checks, which come up all the time, I think, in most campaigns at most tables. Do what you think best. And then, of course, we get our Bard College, our subclass. And we are going with the Swords Bard. And as a Swords Bard, we get some great things. We get bonus proficiencies, first of all. So we get proficiency with medium armor and scimitars, which we already had. But also, you can now use your weapon as a spellcasting focus. And since the rules tell us that we can use the same hand for material components as somatic, we shouldn't need to pay the warcaster tax if we ever wanted to cast spells now with our hands full at least for our bard spells, and we only have bard spells at the moment, so. And just in time, because we also get a fighting style as a swords bard, but we only get two choices, dueling or two-weapon fighting. I would take two-weapon fighting here, primarily because if we're planning on getting a big 
burst round of damage, right? Being able to use our bonus action to make another weapon attack means more potential damage on that round. And if we are thus two weapon fighting, we might as well take the fighting style that lets us add our ability score modifier to the damage of that bonus action weapon attack, since we couldn't do so without taking this fighting style. That said, as we'll see, and as I kind of mentioned already at the beginning, this character is going to suffer a little bit from some bonus action bloat. And so if you decide that you would just be better off grabbing a shield to improve your survivability and then sticking to attacks with just one hand each round, saving your bonus action for everything else that you want to do with it, I think that would be perfectly understandable. And then of course you should take the dueling feat to add two damage to your weapon attacks. But the best part about Swords Bards, of course, is their Blade Flourish. So first up with Blade Flourish, whenever you take the attack action on your turn, your move speed just increases by 10 feet. That's awesome. Next, if you hit a creature with a weapon attack once per turn, you can expend a use of your Bardic Inspiration to do a Blade Flourish. And we get to choose from three options on our Blade Flourish. Each of them add your Bardic Inspiration die to the damage of the attack, but then do something else cool depending on which option you choose, right? Slashing Flourish lets you add that little bonus damage from your Bardic Inspiration die to a second target that's within five feet of you. Mobile Flourish lets you push the target away from you and then use your reaction to move up to half of your move speed so long as you stop moving within five feet of the enemy that you pushed. But I think that Defensive Flourish is the one we will probably be using the vast majority of the time with this character unless an ally has placed a nice cloud of daggers down or something that we really want to push our enemy into. With Defensive Flourish, you get to add the number that you rolled on your Bardic Inspiration die for damage, right, to your armor class as well until the start of your next turn, so it lasts the entire next round of combat. This is really strong. It's going to raise our AC by 3 or 4 on average right now. I mean, if we had half plate armor right now, I and mean, we're level three, so that might be a bit of a stretch, but that would put us at a 20 or a 21 armor class on average without a shield as a level three character. You know I've got plans for a swords bard tank one day, right? At level five, we would be a bard four, and we get our first ability score increase or feat. And I'm gonna recommend that we take Elven Accuracy. I haven't actually used Elven Accuracy for quite a while now. Seems like it used to be in every other build that I would do. With Elven Accuracy, if you have advantage and you're attacking with something other than strength, basically, or constitution, I guess, it is an incredibly strong feat. It lets us, first off, bump our Dexterity, Intelligence, Wisdom, or Charisma by one. We'll take Dexterity, of course, on this version of the character, bringing us up to an 18 Dexterity now. And then when you make an attack with advantage, you basically get to roll three d20s instead of two, so long as, again, you're attacking with Dexterity, Wisdom, Intelligence, or Charisma. Now, yes, we could have gone with a strength-based build here and been less multiple ability score dependent. As I was planning on getting advantage regularly with this character, I wanted to go with like a dex-based attack so that we could benefit from this really fantastic feat. But if you wanted to get a higher constitution and not take a hexblade dip, you could very easily go with a strength-based swords bard build here, skip elven accuracy, and so, you know, our damage would be a little bit lower, but our survivability would go up. You know, it's a trade-off that you got to make a decision on. I actually also, though, I think for a 
swords bard personally envisioned them mostly as being more lithe and dexterous than big bulky and strong but maybe you want to do something different go for it at level six we are going to return to our paladin ways for a moment here to pick up some really nice features so we would be a pally too first off we get paladin spells and while there are some great options there's nothing that i would plan on using in combat here necessarily so i will just say pick your favorites although bless should definitely be given some serious consideration for us especially with elven accuracy we benefit a lot more from the advantage we get from fairy fire but if you think the enemy is likely to make their dexterity saving throw against fairy fire or maybe the enemies are spread out too much and you couldn't get more than one in the area of effect of the spell or couldn't avoid hitting your allies with it for example too because allies that get hit by fairy fire have to make the deck save too and if they fail the enemies are going to have the same advantage on them so that's potentially really bad anyway if any of these things are at play in your combat, Bless is a very strong runner-up consideration for a concentration here, I think. Granting a d4 to you and two other party members, or just three other party members if you want to be totally selfless. And you get to add that d4 to all of your attack rolls and saving throws for the next minute. It's one of the best buffs in the game, I think, and it stays good throughout your character's life. Also, as a Paladin 2, we get another fighting style. I'm probably gonna go with the defense fighting style here, I think, to just add one to my armor class, but if you wanted to pick up a really nice protection option, Interception lets you reduce damage done to an ally within five feet of you using your reaction, and I'm sure your allies will love you for that once in a while. But the main reason that we're here, of course, is for Divine Smite. With Divine Smite, when you hit an enemy with a melee weapon attack, you can spend a spell slot and deal 2d8 additional radiant damage, plus one more d8 if they're undead or a fiend, plus one more d8 for every spell slot higher than first level that you spend on Divine Smite. And here's the really nice thing about what we're doing with this character. As a Paladin 2 Bard 4, we already now have third level spell slots thanks to our multi-classing. So right when we get the ability to use Divine Smite, we can smite for 4d8 damage. And we've almost hit this, the smite cap already, which is a 5d8 uh, or fourth level spell slots. That is really fun. And just in time for our very first damage report at level six. So our tactics here are fairly straightforward. On round one, we're throwing out fairy fire. And on round two, we're making two attacks against our enemy, one with our action and one with our bonus action using our other hand. If we wanted to burst as hard as possible, we could blow a bardic inspiration for an extra d6 of damage for a flourish and two third level spell slots for 4d8 each for a total of 3d6 plus 8d8 plus eight from our dexterity modifier. Both of those attacks being made with elven accuracies triple advantage, assuming your fairy fire stuck, of course, or you otherwise have advantage somehow. I appreciate that this won't always be the case, but assuming best case scenario numbers as always and asking you to adjust accordingly if you need to against an enemy with a 10 armor class, we would do on average during this Nova round 61 damage. And against an enemy with a 15 armor class, it wouldn't be much less, it's 59 damage. And that's really strong. It puts us at the lower end of tier one 
for this level compared to other Nova builds that I've done. And in case you don't know, check the video description and you'll find graphs and spreadsheets and things comparing these burst damage builds to one another. And yeah, that's pretty solid. Now, let me pause for a moment here. I get a lot of comments on almost every video that I do that ask me, can you optimize a character for like level five or six? And my response to those comments is always the same with very few exceptions. In fact, I can't even think of any, but there's probably some out there. I try to optimize every single one of my builds for low level play and mid level play and high level play. This is the whole reason why I do damage reports at level six, nine, 13, and 17. I really care a lot about making each character as powerful as I possibly can at each of those levels because before I started this channel, I got so tired of all of the character builds that I would see online where people were like, look how amazing this character is at level 20, right? Who plays the game at level 20? I certainly never have. I've never even played it at level 17. So I really want to see what this amazing, super uber powerful build looks like all along the way and what the best path might be to get there and how it compares to other things that you could have done all along the way, right? And so for this build, as I've said, I'm trying to make it so that we can do as much burst damage as possible as early as possible. But it's important for us to understand what we would be sacrificing if we make that our top priority. Going Paladin 2 here by level 6 is absolutely the best route to go if we want to make our burst round of damage hit as hard as possible early on. I have crunched numbers for lots of different options, but nothing else even comes close to Divine Smite here. In fact, believe it or not, the route that I've taken, as I mentioned, is even better than had we gone with a Hexblade dip. Because taking a Hexblade dip, we wouldn't have been able to get both Elven Accuracy and Divine Smite going if we wanted to get Swords Bard levels, of course, which is the whole point of this build. But delaying our extra attack and other Bard features like Font of Inspiration to get our Nova damage this high is going to mean that a lot of other aspects of our character suffer, of course. So you just need to decide, right? Do you care about burst damage above all else, like I'm prioritizing for this build? If so, make the sacrifice, go this route, and you're gonna put out some amazing Nova damage at fairly early levels. But if you care more about having higher level spells, more inspiration uses, and extra attack sooner, among other things, then delay Paladin. Cool. At level seven, we would be a Bard five, and we get third level spells. So yes, of course, you should be seriously considering fear, hypnotic pattern, Tiny Hut, Catnap, Dispel Magic. But the only one that I might consider using during our Nova round, at least, would be the Slow spell. Slow is such a fantastic spell. It forces up to six enemies who fail their saving throw to choose between an action or a bonus action, not both. They lose any benefit from multi-attack if they have it. They lose their reaction. They can only move at half speed and potentially have difficulty casting spells. It also lowers their armor class by two and lowering their AC by two is essentially the same thing mathematically as raising your plus to hit by two, but also everyone else in your party. So if you have another means of gaining advantage via something else that someone in your party is doing, slow is probably what I would use for my concentration here, at least if we're looking at bumping our damage and also improving your party's survivability by 
decreasing the efficacy of your enemies. Our Bardic Inspiration here does jump up to a D8 now, and so that is going to mean a slight increase to our damage when we're using it for a flourish. But best of all, at Bard 5 we get Font of Inspiration, and that means that our Bardic Inspirations now reset on a short rest instead of a long rest, ensuring many more uses of our Inspirations and our flourishes. At level 8, we would be a bard six, and we get fourth level spell slots, first of all, thanks to multi-classing, that's important, and that means that we could potentially smite for 5d8 if we decided to burn that spell slot for it. We also get counter charm as a bard six, which is one of the more questionable bardic abilities, I think. With counter charm, as an action, you can start a performance that gives you and your nearby allies advantage on saves against being frightened and charmed. It only lasts for one round until your next turn, but at the cost of your action, I, I really think this only gets used once in a great while. But still, I'm sure that your party will be happy about it once in a great while. Most importantly for us as a swords bard at six, we get extra attack finally. It was a bit of a wait, but like I said, our Nova round at least was better by delaying this in favor of Divine Smite. But now, yes, when we take the attack action, we can attack twice with our action, meaning that we can potentially make three attacks in a turn using our bonus action as well, and that means three smites as well, potentially. But at level nine, here's the thing. Having to rely on Fairy Fire to get us advantage makes me chafe a little. I can't quite get the cream on the chafe spot. For one thing, our charisma isn't great, right? Unless we dipped Hexblade, of course, which I didn't do. And so I'm a little bit squeamish about just assuming that Fairy Fire will have stuck to the target that we're trying to burst down. Fairy Fire also doesn't have a fantastic area of effect. It's not very big, right? And like I've said, it can potentially affect allies as well, so it can be problematic in that way. For another thing, it's using up our concentration, and I would love to at least have the option to concentrate on something else, whether it's a nice control spell or something to increase our damage even further. So I'd really like to find another way to get advantage reliably, if possible, and thus free up our concentration. And so now that we have extra attack secured, I think I'd like to go back to Paladin here for one more level. So at this point in our character's career, they are ready to swear their oath that all Paladins swear in the pursuit of some ideal or creed. Perhaps your character was planning on swearing this oath all along, something in your backstory having set your feet on this path right from level one. But perhaps something, some great loss or tragedy has happened during your adventure now that has caused a sharp shift in where your character maybe thought they were headed. They might have had plans to swear the oath of glory or oath of the crown, but whatever your reasons, we are actually going to take the oath of vengeance here. Let's read about the tenets of the oath of vengeance because they're really cool. The tenets of the oath of vengeance vary by paladin, but all the tenets revolve around punishing wrongdoers by any means necessary. Paladins who uphold these tenets are willing to sacrifice even their own righteousness to mete out justice upon those who do evil. So the paladins are often neutral or lawful neutral in alignment. The core principles of the tenets are brutally simple. Fight the greater evil, no mercy for the wicked, by any means necessary, and restitution. It's a little chilling, right? A little dark almost, which I actually kind of like for a character that's primarily bard. I don't really see most bards as being like the lawful good type. You know, maybe yours is. But anyway, I mean, what happened to our charismatic, charming swords bard? <laughs> 
<laughs> and I actually really like story-wise story what this does for us here. It lets us have a chance to be more than just a stereotypical seduce everything I see bard, right? There's a darker side that lurks under that winning smile and it's mmm mm, delicious. So we do pick up a couple of additional spells as a vengeance paladin thanks to our oath spells that are just always prepared for us. We get Bane, which is sort of like the anti-bless that you cast on your enemies, and Hunter's Mark. Let's talk about Hunter's Mark for a sec. So it requires our concentration, it uses a bonus action to cast, it doesn't allow for a saving throw, it just works, and then adds a d6 of damage to every weapon attack that you land on a creature that's marked until they're dead, whereupon you can, with another bonus action, transfer the mark to a different enemy. Now, the argument against Hunter's Mark and, and Hex, I think too, is if you would have done more damage with your bonus action than getting an extra d6 on your other weapon attacks that round, then it's not a particularly good spell. And I think I generally agree with that. But that said, there are definitely times when it would be worth using, I think. Our bonus action right now could give us an extra attack, right? Which is a d6 of damage for a short sword plus four for our dexterity bonus. So that's 7.5 damage on average. If we used our bonus action for Hunter's Mark instead, it would be an extra d6 for our two attacks that we get with our action. So an extra seven damage on average. So looking at it from that angle, it's almost a wash, right? Of course, if we would have used Divine Smite on that bonus action weapon attack, that we gave up by casting Hunter's Mark, then it's no longer a wash, naturally. On the other hand, if the creature that we're attacking survives until our next turn and we're attacking them again, well, now those d6s are really starting to add up. If we were to get even more attacks later on, then now it's almost as strong as making a weapon attack and piling a Divine Smite on top of it. So. I'm not suggesting that we use Hunter's Mark all of the time. I'm just saying that it may be worth it sometimes, depending on what you're fighting, on what resources are available to you, how quickly your teammates tend to dispatch the enemy that you're targeting, etc., etc. It's a decent arrow to keep in your quiver, especially now that we're not concentrating on fairy fire for advantage during our Nova round, because when paladins swear their oath, they get channel divinity, which lets them do one of two neat things, depending on their oath, once per short rest. And the vengeance paladin option that I'll assume we're using primarily for our channel divinity is vow of enmity, which lets us, as a bonus action, to my everlasting dismay, gain advantage on all attack rolls against a target of your choice within 10 feet of you for one minute or until it drops to zero hit points. So we now have our concentration-free advantage. Yay. Now, yes, it's only against one target per short rest, but we are building for burst damage. Being absolutely devastating with limited capacity is kind of our thing. We also could use our channel divinity for abjure enemy, which lets us use an action to force an enemy to make a wisdom save or be frightened of us. It would also reduce that enemy's move speed to zero. Even if they succeeded on their saving throw, it would reduce their move speed to half until they take damage. Situationally useful, but I don't imagine that we would be using it all that much on this character. Don't forget though, that we do also get harness divine power here, thanks to Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, which lets us use our channel divinity to regain a spell slot as a bonus action. If you don't need the advantage from Vow of Enmity, or I guess if you really need the spell slot, it's a nice option to have. You can only do this once per day, 
and the spell slot can be no more than half your proficiency bonus rounded up. So a second level spell slot for now. And so for our level nine damage report, let's discuss what our best case scenario Nova round might look like right now with the understanding that it might only come up once in a great while. Assuming that you're fighting like a big bad boss with a lot of hit points and you are confident that you would get a few rounds of combat against them, on round one you're going to use Val of Enmity as a bonus action and make a couple of attacks. On round two, Hunter's Mark and make a couple more. And then on round three, you're making three attacks, all with Hunter's Mark and even going full Nova, burning a fourth level spell slot and two third level spell slots for a total that round of 66 plus 13 D8 plus 12 damage. That's awesome, but yeah, that level of damage isn't happening until round three, right? So a little less awesome. I think the reality is what you're probably doing is just crit fishing on those first two rounds, right? With elven accuracy and advantage, you're sitting at a 14.26% chance to crit. So you vow of enmity and if you crit, smite, right? Next turn, hunter's mark and whack, whack. If you crit, smite, and now your hunter's mark damage gets to get doubled also. Round three, the big bad's still up. You have the spell slots for it. Sure, go full ham and just smite on every swing regardless to try and take it down. I think during non-boss like encounters, you're probably just picking out the deadliest enemy, using your Vow of Enmity, and then foregoing Hunter's Mark most of the time, I would guess. Anyway, assuming that big boss scenario, against an enemy with a 10 armor class, we would do 108 damage on average during that Nova round and against an enemy with a 16 armor class, it would be 104. That's still quite good, but we've maybe slipped just a skosh compared to other Nova builds, uh, putting us more firmly like in the top quarter of tier two builds by comparison. At level 10, as much as it pains me to do so, honestly, I think with both our extra attack and now advantage secured, we'd be crazy, at least from a mechanics perspective, to not try and get action surge if we're really trying to build the best Nova character that we can here. So our hero decides now to forego their performance magic and zealotry here for just a little bit to focus solely on perfecting their swordsmanship. If you'd rather not, and you care more about getting those later bard features and higher level spells, etc., go for it. But for us, we're going to take a slight fighter detour now. So we'd be a fighter one, and as such, we get second wind, which lets us, once per short rest, as a bonus action, heal ourselves for d10 plus our fighter level. This is a lot stronger in early game, but, you know, we'll use it in a pinch, or more likely, I think, between combats to save on a hit die or two. But we also, as a fighter one, get yet another fighting style, and I love having three fighting styles on one character. I'm, I'm even tempted to go ranger just to pick up a fourth. <laughs> we could take defense or interception, you know, whichever one you passed on with the paladin, I think. It's not a bad idea. But for me, focused on burst damage like I am especially, I think I would go with superior technique here so that we can learn a battle master maneuver and get a 1d6 superiority die to go with it that we can use once per short rest to fuel one of our attacks. And I think I go with trip attack here for the maneuver. This lets us, you know, when we land a weapon attack on our enemy, deal that extra d6 of damage from our superiority die and then force them to make a saving throw or be knocked prone, giving us and our other melee allies advantage on attacks against that enemy. Now, if we have our vow of enmity on them, of course we shouldn't need advantage, but our allies might appreciate it for one. And of course, 
we only get that vow of enmity once per short rest, so if you want to save trip attack and use it against another enemy, you could enjoy a second, slightly less impactful Nova round uh, per short rest if you wanted or needed to. At level 11, we'd be a fighter 2 and we get action surge and it's why we're here, of course, letting us, again, once per short rest, take another action on a turn, meaning that we could potentially now be making five attacks against an enemy in a single round, right? Your action, two attacks, action surge, two more attacks, bonus action, fifth attack. Potentially even smiting on all five of those attacks, if we wanted to burn the spell slots. And coincidentally, Hunter's Mark, of course, gets even better now, doing almost as much damage if we add that d6 to four attacks as we would have done had we instead used the bonus action to make a weapon attack and smite. To say nothing, of course, of the additional damage that Hunter's Mark could bring us on subsequent rounds. At level 12 though, I think we're going back to Bard and staying there for the rest of our career. So we'd be a Bard 7 and we get 4th level spells. And of course you should take things like Polymorph and Dimension Door, but I will also mention Greater Invisibility as a strong option for our damage. It lets us be invisible and remain invisible even if we attack or cast spells unlike regular invisibility. Meaning that most creatures won't be able to see us and if they can't see us, all of our attacks would be made with advantage, and all of their attacks against us would be made with disadvantage, and especially for someone with elven accuracy who likes to smite when they get a critical hit, the power of that should not be underestimated. If you have Vow of Enmity and or Trip Attack up for a fight, maybe don't worry about it, but if you get into combat again before a short rest, Greater Invisibility will do more for our damage, to say nothing of our survivability, than probably any other concentration spell that we have access to right now. Of course, unless someone else in your party is getting you advantage somehow, or the enemies have true sight or something. At level 13, we would be a bard 8 and we get another ability score increase or feat. And I would recommend bumping our dexterity so we're capped now at 20. That, of course, is going to do more for our damage than anything else we could take here. And coincidentally, our armor class would be just as good in studded leather now as it would be in half plate. So feel free to switch if you've been using half plate thus far, if you don't want disadvantage on your stealth checks, or of course, especially if you have access to some really great magical light armor. It's nice to have options. We also would have a 5th level spell slot right now thanks to multi-classing for more smites and or probably if you're smart another use of like polymorph or fear or slow or something. For our damage report then at level 13 compared to the last time we checked we've capped our dexterity and we could now if we chose to smite for 5d8 on three of our attacks action surge and smite for 4d8 on two more. We've also added a superiority die, potentially to our Nova round for another d6 of damage. As always, I'm not really suggesting that we should blow all of these expensive limited resources in a single round of combat. Just trying to figure out what our potential might be. And so, if we did do all of those things against an enemy with a 10 armor class, we would on average do 192 damage during our Nova round, and against an enemy with a 16, and against an enemy with a 17 armor class, it would be 188 damage. Yikes. 
that's almost double since last time we checked. And we're now more firmly back in like the bottom of tier one compared to other burst damage builds at this level. And thus we see the undeniable potential of action surge, especially when coupled with divine smite. At level 14, we would be a bard nine. Our song of rest goes from a d6 to a d8, so that's a little bit more healing uh, during your short rest. And then we get fifth level spells. All right. There are a lot of great spells here that we need to be thinking about. First off, I'm going to say Get Greater Restoration. It's a fantastic spell that heals and cures lots of stuff that nothing else in the game can heal or cure. And as a bard, I think people are going to be looking to you to provide some support and healing potential, right? But as for what we might potentially use for our damage, let's start off with Animate Objects. This is potentially a really powerful spell, but it depends a lot on the enemies you're fighting and how your DM rules things at your table. I think most people would agree that rules as written, the objects you animate, though you're using a spell to animate them, they don't by default do magical damage. Now, if that's not the case at your table and or you're fighting creatures that don't have resistance to non-magical bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage, and at this level I think most probably will, but if they're not, and you're not fighting something with an area of effect attack or spell that can just like wipe out all of your little coins or dinner forks or whatever you've animated, then it's going to be a pretty good use of a fifth level spell slot. But because there are so many qualifiers around it, I just don't feel great, frankly, about assuming that we're just going to be able to realize the full potential of this spell with a lot of regularity at this level. I think it's a good one to have in your quiver, pull it out in the right situation, but I'm, I'm not going to rely on it for number crunching purposes. What about Awaken? Awaken is a potentially great spell that also makes me slightly squeamish. <laughs> no one gets access to this spell other than bards or druids, and you can essentially bring like a tree to life and have it charmed for 30 days without concentration. But there's nothing in the spell that says that this tree that you've awakened must obey you, right? There's no, like, as a bonus action, you can command it to blah, 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 or anything like that. It's just charm, so you have advantage on social interactions with it. Oh, and it takes eight hours to cast, and it consumes an expensive material component, and even if your DM decides that it will just join your party and fight with you under your command and, and do what you tell it to, and now it's just another companion, it only has a 13 armor class and 59 hit points. And we're level 14 characters, right? So it might have died last fight. <laughs> Again, I think it's a good one to have in your quiver, potentially, but I just don't feel real comfortable assuming it's just going to work at all tables and in all combats like we would hope. Okay, what about Hold Monster? If you're playing the game at this level and you didn't take a Hexblade dip, this is the point at which you might regret that decision. <laughs> but maybe not. I mean, Hold Monster is amazing in that it can paralyze an enemy, meaning that Attacks against that enemy would have advantage, and successful attacks made against them from within five feet are automatic critical hits, right? Tried to take advantage of this in the Critlander build. The problem with Hold Monster is that it requires an action to cast. They get to save against it initially, and then again at the end of each of their turns. Now, we didn't take sorcerer levels or anything to give us, like, 
the chance to quicken hold monster and then make a bunch of attacks against them on our turn, right? We could use action surge to cast it, but that means we're giving up two potentially really strong attacks so that we could crit on three of them, which means, yes, we would do a little more damage overall, but not a ton more. And of course, if they succeed on their saving throw against our decent but not amazing spell save DC, you're going to be really mad that you burned both action surge and a fifth level spell slot on this spell. I think if you're confident that the enemy has a pretty low wisdom saving throw and or like maybe you have an ally that can reduce their saving throw chance or something, then sure, go for it if you really want to try to burst something down. And I mean, you know, don't forget that, sure, you would do more damage if the spell landed, but if you've got melee allies especially that are going before the creature's turn, it's going to be a ton more damage for your whole party, right? And you'd be wasting the enemy's turn as well if the spell stuck. So potentially very, very strong. But I just don't think that on this character, I can assume that it's going to work all of the time when we need it. I'm going to say, have that arrow in your quiver, know when to pull it out, but when I crunch numbers, I'm not going to assume that we're using any of these 5th level spells. And I don't actually feel that bad about it, because at level 15, we would be a bard 10, and we are potentially now going to get something that's arguably better than any of those spells that I just mentioned, in that it just kind of works all the time and does great things for our damage. Because at bard 10, we get magical secrets, which lets us learn two spells from any class's spell list. So long as it's of a level we can cast as per the bard's spell table, meaning that even though yes, we do now have sixth level spell slots, thanks to multi-classing, right now we can only cast fifth level bard spells, so it has to be a fifth level spell or lower, right? And boy howdy, are there lots of good fifth level spell slots when we can choose from any class's spell list. First up, I think we probably need to take Wall of Force here. It's just such an amazing control option spell that we don't otherwise get access to. As for the second spell that we'd learn with Magical Secrets, I think the two options we should consider would be Shadow Blade and Spirit Shroud. You guys know I love Shadow Blade. It might be my favorite spell in the game, as silly as that may sound to some of you. The big problem with using it, of course, is, and especially at this level, that magic weapons exist in D&D. <laughs> and if you compare the additional damage that we would get from an upcasted Shadow Blade to an upcasted Spirit Shroud, like using both of them at fifth level, and, and some of you are like, why would you use either of those at fifth level? That's crazy. Because I want to hit stuff hard with my weapons. That's why. But anyway, a straight across comparison, Shadow Blade is the clear winner, but we are character level 15 right now. If you have a couple of like rare short swords, say plus two short swords, which I think is probably pretty likely at most tables at this level, then Spirit Shroud is going to take the lead damage-wise, at least at the enemy ACs that you are likely to be fighting at this level. And again, I have to believe that at most tables, in most campaigns, the likelihood that you're going to have a couple of rare quality magic weapons by this point, if not better, is really high. I mean, you might have, you might have a very rare weapon, or even like a legendary weapon, right? Even a couple of flame tongue short swords right now puts spirit shroud way ahead of shadow blade and they're only rare 
quality. You know, I do think that there is an argument to be made for Shadowblade if you're playing in a really like low magic item setting, or if you're playing an adventure where you're more often in dim light or darkness than bright light, since Shadowblade gives you advantage in dim light or darkness. Or of course, if you just really love the spell and you like feeling like a Jedi using a lightsaber in D&D, like I do. But otherwise, I think you probably have to go with Spirit Shroud here. If you're looking at something to boost your damage, I think it's just going to more likely give a bigger benefit for most of us most of the time. So with Spirit Shroud, you cast it as, yes, a bonus action, but thereafter, so long as you maintain concentration, all of your attacks against enemies within 10 feet of you deal an extra d8 of damage, 2d8 if you upcast it to fifth level. The damage can be cold, necrotic, or radiant. You choose when you cast the spell, and you have the added benefit of reducing the speed of all enemies by 10 feet if they start their turn within 10 feet of you. Oh, and it's way better than Hunter's Mark, of course. Not only for the better damage and the slow effect, but you don't have to use a bonus action to transfer it to a different target every time your current one dies, as the spell affects you and all of your attacks. You're not casting it on an enemy, right? I think it's a fabulous spell, and I like it a lot. Our Bardic Inspiration does go up to a d10 now, so that's great. And then we do get another round of expertise here, so we can pick two more skills that we're proficient in, double our proficiency bonus, and that's awesome. At level 16, we would be a Bard 11. We get sixth level spells, and I mean, I'm gonna say pick your favorite, but your favorite should really be Mass Suggestion. <laughs> Concentration-free group control, it just cannot be ignored. And finally for us, at level 17, we'd be a Bard 12. We get another ability score increase or feat. I mean, we could bump our charisma, right? But I kind of almost feel like we've gone this long with our 16 charisma. I, I feel like by this point, we've sort of made peace with the fact that we just don't have a great charisma score on this Bardadin. I think if it were me, I'm probably taking Resilient Constitution. And in fact, we probably should have taken that a long time ago, right? Since we're relying on concentration spells so much, and this would increase our constitution to 14, which is fantastic, plus gives us proficiency in our constitution saving throws. Honestly, I think if I were playing this character in-game, I might have done this back at Bard 8. And don't forget, we do have a 7th level spell slot now at this level. And that means we could upcast Spirit Shroud now to do 3d8 damage per hit if we wanted to. And yeah, that's what I'll assume that we're going to do, though I don't know that I necessarily recommend it for our final damage report at level 17 here. So yes, you know, we could even if we chose spend our other high level spell slots for 5d8 smites on each of our five attacks that we would get with action surge. Oh, and don't forget that our inspiration has gone up now to a d10 for that flourish. And thus, against an enemy with a 10 armor class, we would on average do 261 damage during our burst round. And against an enemy with an 18 armor class, it would be 255 damage on average. And that is very strong, obviously, and puts us firmly in like the bottom half of tier one compared to other Nova builds at this level. And so, final thoughts. The tier score for this character, when you average all the damage that they could do against all enemy armor classes at each of the four damage reports, is a 152.4. 
putting them just above last place in tier one, which was the Hexblade Lockedon, which was a 152.3, so very close. <laughs> anyway, very, very strong. Great damage, great Nova damage potential. And, you know, looking back on the character, the real question for me is, if I really rolled this character exactly as I've laid out here, how would I play them in game? With our not amazing armor class, outside of when we use defensive flourish, and the fairly low concentration saving throw that we that this character would have for most of their career, as I've laid out anyway, I really don't think I'd want to be in melee all that often. I would say that it's a character who would run in, go Nova, just as hard as you can. But once your Vow of Enmity enemy is dead, and once your Nova round is over, I probably want to just back off and play more of a support and or like secondary striker role. Finishing off low health targets, you know, maybe putting yourself next to a tankier ally. And like, I'm okay with that. I mean, didn't we play Bard for a reason? And wasn't that reason, at least in part, because we wanted not just to like hit stuff in combat, but be the all singing, all dancing crap of the world. You went swords bard, so like maybe you want to hit stuff a little more effectively than most bards, but you still made a bard, right? Surely there's a sizable part of you that wants to inspire your allies and make them better in combat and make your enemies worse in combat. Heal and entertain and enthrall. Of course there is. What a shame it would be if we were to use every single one of our bardic inspirations on ourselves. So I almost feel like, thank goodness that we're better off just stepping up and destroying a foe and then standing back and inspiring our allies for the rest of the combat encounter with a song about how amazing it was when we destroyed that foe, <laughs> right? That is the essence of a bard to me. And I'll be honest, as someone who's playing a character built for burst damage right now in our Tales of Anaria campaign, I get a little bit jealous of these kinds of builds. Ones that do fantastic burst damage on demand, and then afterwards have some really cool, fun, flavorful ways to support and buff and debuff. With my current Hexblade character, I feel like I get to do a ton of like amazing burst damage, and then just sort of okay mediocre damage that can sometimes feel a little lackluster and even a little mundane. Part of me really craves the ability to do something like this where I can hit like a truck when I need to and then do other things you know throughout the combat encounter that are going to help my allies and it just would give you some additional versatility to your combat encounters and to your playstyle. and that is exactly what we get to do with this swords bard build and it's exactly why I love it so much. So that's the build for the week. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope that you'll check out the other content in the channel if you aren't typically in the habit of doing so, and that you'll like and subscribe and comment and all of those things that I'm supposed to tell you to do. More than anything, I hope you know how much I love you and how grateful I am for you guys. Thanks for watching. I hope you have a fantastic week, and I hope to see you again soon. And until then, be good and kind and happy and safe. Take care. Time for lunch break. Homemade spaghetti. So good. Half elf, half elf.
do do my whole heart will be yours forever this is a beautiful start to a lifelong love letter um ah the joys of recording on a holiday when school's out can you guys hear the the neighbor kids playing basketball outside <laughs> Hopefully the mic isn't picking it up too much. If you have headphones in, you can probably hear it. And to you, I apologize. Taking advantage of superior... Man, I'm struggling today. La 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 la. Oh, spaghetti sauce. Um, don't even say any of that. What is that, a sunset? Dun, 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 dun. Just trying to figure out... Oh. That was loud. Hmm. Yeah. Cut all of that. I always screw this up. Let's just confirm something. <laughs> Check this out. Yes. I totally splurged on myself when I was in Disneyland with my kids last week. And I have no regrets. I love it. <laughs> 